I was really quiet as a child, very shy, very timid. But when I was a teenager, mm -hmm. I was an absolute nightmare. The History in Polyam and Pau's Podcast, in association with thehistorycorner.org. Podcasts, articles, reviews. Greetings. must not get one's knickers in a twist. Hello and welcome to the History Emporium and Powers podcast. Now I'm ecstatic to have uh, Paddy back uh, to do the Troubles part two. This wasn't meant to be a two-part episode but my computer decided to break. So here we are. We're going to cover 1963 of the Troubles to 1969. So welcome back Paddy. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. And uh, as ever, I'm I'm delighted to be here, Ollie. Thank you. I'm sorry you had to record this again. <laughs> it's, no, uh... it's great because um, you know it, it's it's uh, it's a second shot at it. And um, as we were discussing there, now I was able to do just a little bit more research. So hopefully, this episode will be up to up to the same level as the last one. Wonderful. Yeah, I've had some really positive feedback from the last episode. So, yeah, really, really interesting conversation sparked from it as well. So, yeah, no, it's been great. It's been great. So, um, yeah, I'm going to I'm going to throw it over to you. So we left at 1963. Yeah, we left at 1963. And I've been thinking since we recorded the last one, why the 1960s? Why was the 1960s not just for the troubles in Northern Ireland, and that was at the very end of the decade, but why was it this decade of huge change or supposed change across the world? And here's my theory, right? <clears throat> so World War One is one of those events that just changes history, you know, absolutely smashes it up in every way possible. So in the 1920s, you've got this competition between communism, fascism, and parliamentary democracy. And you can see that huge debate and clash happening all over Europe and, and in America. In the 1930s, you've got depression. And uh, the 1940s, of course, you've got World War Two, then one of the big players is taken out fascism goes. Then we come into the 1950s. And there's the Red Scare. But when the Red Scare in society almost comes to nothing, then the communist threat goes away. And then after especially the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962, when the world almost backed off from nuclear war and this period of detente and you know friendship between East and West started, then I think there was an ability for introspection within societies uh, uh, across, across the Western world. And I think Northern Ireland was, was a bit late to this, actually. I think that it, it started off in America and then started to filter across, because I think when a society's not threatened as much, it can start to, to look at itself clearly. Now, within Northern Ireland, you've got that international context, but then you've also got these educational reforms that took place after World War II, uh, which enabled Catholics, as we know, there was this class divide in, in Northern Ireland, Catholics tending to be more lower class than Protestants. More Catholics had access to a third level education. So not only were they learning about how wrong the society that they were growing up in was, but also they were learning how to protest about it and how to change this society. Now, bizarrely, from the creation of Northern Ireland, there was this parliamentary convention, and I'm not going to pretend that I know much about parliamentary convention, but essentially within the House of Commons, it was prohibited to question or debate any issues about Northern Ireland. And that lasted right the way through until Harold Wilson, who was a Labour Prime Minister, until he took power in 1964. Mm. So there's that, that point as well. And um, I mean, it got me to thinking, what other conventions are there? What else is not being discussed in Parliament? But I suppose that's not for today. Now, you mentioned 1963 at the start of the podcast. This is the year when Captain Terence O'Neill became the Prime Minister of Northern Ireland. Now, he was landed gentry, he went to Eton, 
spoke with a what do you call it RP spoke with a with a posh English accent <laughs> served in World War that was II. very good <laughs> I want you Thank to you do very the, much I want you to do the rest of the podcast in that accent please <laughs> You don't ask much, do you? Served in World War Two, and <laughs> this is and, the BBC. Uh, <laughs> so he served in World War Two, uh, tragically, but he lost both his brothers during the war. Um, but he, he he got involved in politics afterwards. He served as the finance minister in Northern Ireland for seven years, but he was seen as too English, mm. almost too posh to connect with uh, with the people of Northern Ireland, and. When we remember from last time, this was a one-party state. The Ulster Unionist Party controlled all mechanisms of, of government. And he found it very difficult to, to connect with people. And um, he, for example, he would walk his horse into his local village to, to go to the shops and would behave in this very standoffish way, very awkward social skills, so was unable to um, mix particularly well with people behind the scenes. But more importantly, he couldn't reach out to the average person in Northern Ireland, Protestant or Catholic. Um, What a prick. He sounds like a prick. (laughs) Well, here's the thing. He's seen as a reformer. Okay. But it's one of those reputations, Ollie, that when you look back in the past, you can't really find any reforms that he did. Mm. But I think he modelled himself as a reformer. So almost when he had this uh, this aura around him, it wasn't really questioned. So now, hindsight is a beautiful thing, isn't it? We can always look back mm. on a, a person and forget what they were actually like. Um, Winston Churchill being one of them. Um, mm. Absolutely. And it's interesting you brought up Churchill because Churchill's seen as... He was the right man at the right time to become prime minister and be Britain's war leader. Um, I mean, so many times throughout his career, he he he, he made terrible decisions. And mm. so often he was the wrong man at the right time or the right man at the wrong time. But in 1940, he was the right man at the right time. Now, O'Neill was the wrong man at the wrong time for, for Northern <laughs> Ireland. He... I like the idea of being a reformer, but had no idea of how to get it through. Now, I'm going to read a quote for you, which is probably the quote that he's most famous for. And he said this after he stepped down, essentially when he was forced out of office Mm. in 1969. And I'm not going to read this in an English accent. (laughs) Oh, please. Okay. It is frightfully hard to explain to Protestants that if you give Roman Catholics a good job and a good house, they will live like Protestants because they will see neighbours with cars and television sets. And then he goes on to say, and will not have 18 children. She's thinking, oh God, no, no, no. So the fact that he publicly tried to convince two thirds of a population that if you give the other third a good house, they will see their neighbours with cars and TVs and then they'll start to behave like Protestants. And obviously you can imagine the reaction from Catholics. You know, dumbfounded that, that, you know, that it's so blatantly sectarian coming from this man who, who was the leader. Now, I did say he was the wrong man at the wrong time. But then again also, could anyone have fought off both sides in Northern Ireland in the 1960s? I'm not sure they could. But then again, like you say, hindsight is is a wonderful thing. Now, here are his actions. Before we get to the big civil rights protests of the 1960s, here's three of his actions uh, uh, in Northern Ireland. Number one, there were new business investments, as you know, the traditional shipbuilding uh, started to Mm -hmm. decline and, and, and eventually stop. New business investments in Northern Ireland were put into Protestant areas. So the largely Catholic West was ignored. The second one was that a new city was planned. And I suppose this was a time when just new cities were built, weren't they? Mm. Um, I was born so in one. <laughs> really? Yeah. Which new city was it? Yeah, so Stevenage is one of the first new towns built after the war. Um, right. So although the the town, it, it was there, they just built the new town around the old town. But yeah, it was the first new town in the entire country. So, yes, I was born in one of these new towns. But, yes, you're right. Places like Milton Keynes, etc. Um, there's mm. a couple in, in, in Scotland. They just like, hey, let's put a town here. Done. 
I think it speaks to this amazing sort of optimism of the time that you could just build a new town mm. like that would never happen now and right. wasn't there this idea of like sort of sky links between sort of high-rise flats and it was I, yeah. a fascinating time but anyhow this new city that was planned in northern ireland was built in a protestant area and named after a unionist prime minister and number three a new university was created but instead of being built in Derry, the second largest city it, w- it was built in Coleraine, again a largely protestant town so when you look at o'neill's actions there were opportunities there for him to be a bit of a reformer um and to perhaps uh, balance the scales a little bit but that was not something which he did at all now i mentioned uh, a few moments ago both sides so what were the two both sides almost uh, gunning probably the wrong phrase but uh challenging o'neill mm. on the one side you've got ian paisley now he was a uh he was a an evangelist protestant minister who was ex- uh, almost an extreme unionist that we would call loyalist so you know would almost uh, support violence to to get his means okay now he believe it or not as one of the men uh I suppose you could say who played a role in the beginning of the troubles actually became uh, first minister and served alongside Martin McGuinness, who was the leader of the IRA during the troubles. So the two of them, um, they essentially led Northern Ireland together. They were called the Chuckle Brothers. This was a couple of years before his death. Um, it's weird. They would travel around the world sort of giving people gifts of um linen and soda bread and stuff to try to try to get people to invest in northern ireland yeah it's bizarre anyhow in the 60s he was he was a firebrand preacher and he took a huge uh stance against o'neill and that he would represent this loyalist working class hardline view that you do not give an inch to reform because the way he saw it there was a fifth column in society you can always see this phrase, a fifth column in speeches, just waiting to almost seep through the cracks and to launch some sort of revolution. So the way he saw it, any leeway that was given to the Catholic population meant before you know it, it's a Catholic United Ireland and almost the, the Protestants in Northern Ireland go the same way as the Huguenots in France. Mm-hmm. Now, here's some examples of what he did before uh, 1968, 1969. So the... Union flag at Belfast City Hall was lowered to half-mast when the Pope, uh, a Pope died in 1964. He protested that. In the general election campaign of 1964, he marched into a Catholic area with a mob because there was an Irish tricolour uh, shown in a shop window. Uh, so he went in and removed it because the police wouldn't do it. So... Again, by the way, to fly the Irish tricolour was illegal in, in Northern Ireland. Okay, I was going to say, what that why would that be yeah, a Yeah, that was... But okay. Yeah, it was... But, I mean, bizarrely, it was illegal. So hold on, and, um, in the 60s, it mm. was illegal to have the tricolour? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What? That's insane. It was illegal to fly that, yeah. Well, it goes back to those, uh, to almost like the the acts that we discussed in in the last. I was about to say the last lesson in our last podcast. <laughs> you are, you yeah. may be a teacher, but you <laughs> you are not a lecture now. <laughs> this is not a lesson. <laughs> this is not, <laughs> this is my show. No, I'm joking. <laughs> I'm a pupil of anything. Yes. Um, so so Paisley was this uh, was this man who who almost led this new wave of protest against O'Neill. And almost any reform that O'Neill tried to do, Paisley was there was there protesting. At one occasion, throwing snowballs at him, but I'm not going to get into that now. So <laughs> That's um, an image Paisley. and a half. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Outside the Parliament buildings. Yeah. Uh, I hate Belfast. you. I hate you. <laughs> and what says that more than a snowball? Yeah. Um, now, Paisley was a member of the Orange Order. And the Orange Order, who, again, we discussed last time, but this exclusively Protestant organization who knitted together Protestant churches and communities, almost all MPs and business leaders were members. The Orange Order, named after William of Orange, uh, were also uh, in support of Paisley and uh, resisting any reform that O'Neill tried to bring in. So 
that's one uh, that's one side who were protesting against O'Neill. Now, just while I'm here, I was out for a walk. I live in, in Canterbury in Kent, and I was out for a walk uh, with my twins earlier, you know, just sort of enjoying the spring evening. And I walked down a street called Orange Street, and I thought, as I walked down it, you would like this fact. William of Orange came to visit Canterbury and stayed on a street, which at the time was not called Orange Street. But they named the street after him, not to praise him in any way, but because he refused to pay his bill. He stayed in a hotel, you know, had, you know, the finest food Canterbury had to offer, blah, 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 and left without paying. So they named a street after him to remind <laughs> the people of Canterbury forever that William of Orange was a cheapskate. Um, <laughs> That's shaming on a big scale, isn't it? Isn't but that they, shaming? They need to have a plaque there, though, explaining that, that it's, yeah. not, a, that it's, not, a, um, it's not a praising of the man. Yeah. It's actually a condemnation yeah. of him. Exactly, exactly, yeah, yeah. And then, interestingly enough, on Orange Street, uh, there is the office where the deeds to the Mayflower were signed so that's where the Mayflower was booked to uh to sail um to sail over to America but listen that's another podcast so <laughs> we we've got one side of the uh one side of the pro- uh, protest against O'Neill on the other side it's not really what you would expect if you were to look at Northern Ireland today or even Northern Ireland from you know 1970 onwards it's not Republican, it's not nationalist, it's not the IRA. It was actually a group called the Northern Ireland Civil Rights Association. They were created in 1967. They were a big umbrella organisation. Their main slogan was one man, one vote. So in Northern Ireland at the time, for every property you owned and every business you owned, you had a vote for it. Now, uh, Protestants generally being uh, wealthier than Catholics, that meant that they would have more votes and more sway. And we discussed issues such as mm. gerrymandering last time. That's not um, fair, is it? I mean, it's mad when you think, like, again, you mentioned earlier, like, this was in the 60s that, mm. that there wasn't universal suffrage. You know, universal suffrage is something that we would tend to link with, with the suffragettes. And we generally, most people think that this was introduced after World War One. I, I mean, and even the suffragettes was not the in case. the UK were late to the party. Like, everyone else in Europe mm. had kind of got there before we had. Um, <laughs> I must say, I didn't know that. Mm, um, yeah, we were one of the last. Every day school day. Yeah, one of the last um, countries to give suffrage to women. Ah, but I believe Switzerland was in the nineteen seventies. I think that was weirdly okay, well, one of these countries that was really far behind. But they're not. They're European, but they're not the EU, aren't they? Mm, I they realise s- how, how far behind Britain yeah, was. Yeah. Hmm. Their flag is a big plus, etc., etc. Um, right. Uh, so, oh, forgive me. Uh, so we've got the Northern Ireland Civil Rights Association, largely based on uh, the civil rights uh, groups in America, uh, peaceful protest, uh, attracting media attention, uh, totally nonviolent. Now they were created in 1967. They would do marches. They would do sit-ins. They would do speeches, and. As I said before, it was a huge umbrella organisation. You would have Marxists in there. You would have middle-class Protestants. You would have Catholic students. So this was really a huge uh, melting pot of Northern Irish society who were against uh, the the sectarian policies of, of the Stormont government. Um, now, yes, there was members of the IRA in there, uh, as the likes of Paisley would have, would have loudly been... Uh, been saying but the ira by this stage was almost like a extreme left-wing pressure group they Mm. they were marxist they were not along the lines of traditional irish republicanism they were this sort of hodgepodge that really did not hold that much sway in society until they were needed but that's later on uh, that's later on in in the podcast and I, i was thinking you could i guess compare NICRA, Northern Ireland Civil Rights Association, with something like Black Lives Matter, which is just, you know, a huge organization which brings in so many different elements uh, across the world. So think that sort of uh, association for for NICRA. Now, the next year, the People's Democracy were created. They Their demands were the same as NICRA. They were mostly students and actually they, they were fed up. They wanted more more extreme protest, not violent, 
but they wanted to court media attention more and they were more than happy to put up with with police brutality uh, as long as it meant that they were gaining a more equal society now a man who is a wonderful uh, politician who sadly passed away in 2020 is john hume and he was a man who right the way throughout the troubles was i suppose a man of peace first and, and fairness and then a man of uh, nationalism second and his saying was you can't eat a flag and I think that sums up the new nationalism of the 1960s. You know, you can protest about Ireland, you can protest this, that and the other. But ultimately, he said, we need to create a fair society. We need to have access to credit. So it was very modern thinking. He established the first credit union in Northern Ireland in Derry in 1960. So this was a guy who was really thinking ahead of his time, uh, set up businesses to make sure that local fish were sold in local markets and not exported to England and uh, and things like that. So John Hume was almost this counterbalance to Paisley. But throughout the Troubles, he was uh, a man of peace. And uh, really, really, I would urge your listeners to uh, to uh, look up John Hume because he really is, uh, w- was, sorry, uh, an absolutely wonderful man. He seems now, like a good guy. I was great. Absolutely great, yeah. And um, I'm sure we'll, I know you're very eager to do more podcasts on, on the Troubles. And he was a <laughs> I man. I keep bullying who you was, into it. <laughs> you do, you do. I'm and like, I, I, want I just to want get... to talk about like shipping disasters. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, I want to get closer to the 90s. Let me get closer yeah, you to do. the 90s. Yeah, you do, you do. Exactly. You're the Paisley to my O'Neill. I'm just like, we just need to take this slowly. <laughs> <laughs> That's what my last <laughs> partner said to me, and that's why I'm single now. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, right. This we're, is taking we're, another odd turn, hasn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's fine. We'll move on. Sorry, continue. Mm. <laughs> okay, so I feel like I've set the scene now. We can almost see all these different pressure groups. And towards the end of the 1960s, it all starts to come together. And each of the events that I'm going to talk you through now, if our listeners were to Google each one of them, there would be comments there saying this was the beginning of the Troubles. So I'm going to take us through from 1968 until the end of August 1969. And each of these events created this huge uh, snowball effect that just made the situation in Northern Ireland get worse and worse and worse until we saw soldiers in the streets, extreme violence and essentially war zones. So in 1968... A man called Austin Curry, who was a young nationalist MP, staged a protest by squatting in a house in uh, County Tyrone uh, near the town of Dungannon. Now, there was a bit of a uh, controversy because a 19-year-old single Protestant girl, member of the Unionist Party, um, was given a house by the Housing Association, you know, council housing, in preference to two Catholic families who these two Catholic families had actually squatted for a time in the district as they were so desperate for housing. And uh, they were obviously passed over and this girl was given the house uh, to herself. So he then squatted in the house. Thousands attended a public rally. And um, at this stage then, uh, once Curry was, you know, evicted and there was huge media attention, then the civil rights movement staged its first protest march. And they went from the village of Coal Island to Dungannon in Tyrone. Now, in a pattern that was to be repeated right the way through to the start of the Troubles and then throughout the Troubles themselves, there was counter-protests. So as soon as Paisley saw a, a civil rights protest, he would have a counter-protest. He gathered a group called the Ulster Protestant Volunteers and gathered to confront them. Now, the marchers, uh, the civil rights protesters, sang We Shall Overcome, uh, mirroring the uh, their sort of uh, partners in America. And uh, in Paisley's protest from time to time, they would sing Onwards Christian Soldiers. So another march was organised then uh, in October, another big civil rights march. And uh, again, it was taking this American approach of you provoke the authorities into a confrontation. And the strategy worked. Uh, William Craig, who was a minister for home affairs, banned this October march. And uh, by him banning the march, uh, because there wasn't, of course, freedom of assembly in Northern Ireland at the time, 
then this swell the numbers who attended it. Now the police, the RUC, the Royal Ulster Constabulary, they spectacularly overreacted using water cannons, batons on what was clearly a peaceful march, like they handled it really badly. Mm. Now crucially, there was a Dublin television crew there for RTE, who are like the, the Irish uh, version of, of the BBC. Mm. And um, they, you know, recorded senior police officers really uh, brutally raining down heavy blows on a number of marchers. One of the marchers was actually the member of uh, Parliament in Westminster for West Belfast, Jerry Fitt. And there was images of his, you know, bloody head and blood all over his shirt. And, you know, when you look at this, it's just a case of that could have been handled so differently. Do you think but it again, was handled like that, A, because they wanted to assert their authority, and B, because they, um, they I don't know, they were just, I don't know what my B was, I'm sorry. <laughs> I got the A, Is that, were they just being too heavy handed? <laughs> I mean, I think they were. I think they were, and I suppose, like... <laughs> To be perfectly honest, to hold my hands up and say, I don't know. Um, I really don't know. Perhaps it was a case of being heavy handed. Um, perhaps they weren't given the training. Uh, I don't know if the, the culture at the time in you know West Europe, Western Europe and America was for police to be heavy handed. So I'd hold my hands up and say, I don't know. But I mean, what we do know is that this played into the civil rights marchers hands because they get huge media attention. Mm. And uh, now that in in London and from 1964 there was a Labour government led by Harold Wilson and they didn't like the idea that they were propping up this uh, hugely problematic government in in Northern Ireland so the more media attention that was coming to uh, coming to Northern Ireland the more the Labour government were willing to challenge Belfast and to challenge O'Neill so essentially O'Neill's dilemma is do you reform and anger the extreme wing of your party and Paisley, or do you uh, <laughs> do you not reform and anger the civil rights campaigners? And um, what we then saw was added into this huge pressure from London. So Wilson was embarrassed and angry that uh, across the BBC then this was being reported. And of course, anything throughout the the Cold War era has to be considered in the in the gauge of what the Soviet Union were going to be saying about Britain as well. You know, the once great empire is now uh, beating on, on civil rights protesters. Mm. So Wilson was threatening then to take financial support away from, from Northern Ireland. And uh, with deindustrialization happening, uh, on quite a large scale basis this was huge so the idea that london would stop the slush funding in northern ireland was massive now at this time in fairness to o'neill he was receiving death threats not not from republicans but but from loyalists and like like any i was about to say any weak politician i think he was a weak politician but i don't know what even a good politician would have done he introduced a five-point reform plan it, it was a fudge, you know, there was moderate voting reform, some changes to housing policy. It was too little too late. He sacked uh, a member of his uh, of his cabinet. But really, it it's almost like the cat had got out of the bag. If he was going to do reforms, why was he leaving it until there was a uh, huge disruption uh, across Northern Ireland? Now, you know, he gave a crossroads speech appealing for calm, as any politician would do. But on Christmas Eve 1968, he wrote a private letter to a friend and he wrote, What a year. I fear 1969 will be worse. The one thing I cannot foresee in 1969 is peace. And he was absolutely right. On New Year's Day 1969, uh, the People's Democracy... They were the uh, civil rights group, mostly students who were really eager for change. They didn't want the slow, calculated move of, of NICRA. So they had arranged a march from Belfast to Derry. So if you think of Northern Ireland, Belfast is just to the right of Loch uh, Ney, mm -hmm. which is the sort of the at the center of the six counties. Belfast is to the right and Derry actually you know i'll use the compass belfast is to the east Derry is to the northwest so there was going to be a four-day march based on the selma to montgomery march 
that uh, Martin Luther King did in America. Now, NICRA advised against this. They said it's going to needlessly antagonize loyalists and the police. <laughs> the people's democracy said, yeah, that's the point. Now, they planned the route. The route was public. There was huge media attention on it. On the 4th of January, it flared into open violence outside a village called Burntullet Bridge. And this is another one of these big events of the civil rights era. Now, the march was ambushed by hundreds of loyalists at Burntullet Bridge, uh, large numbers of attackers throwing stones uh, and, uh, you know, assaulting, beating the, uh, the marchers. The police were accused of standing by and possibly even helping to engineer it. And, of course, there was speak of off-duty members of the B-Specials, the police reserves, were said to be among uh, the attackers. Now, there's also been uh, sources, again, that's unconfirmed, that, that the police were involved. Um, is it, it's possible? Yeah, absolutely. Is it, is it probable? Sure. Um, but then there's also uh, been sources that are unconfirmed saying that there was actually IRA men providing the marchers with support, but only during the night so that they could make sure that there was media attention if they were attacked during the day. Possible? Yes. Probable? I don't know. Uh, I don't know. Now, when the march arrived in uh, Derry, and of course, uh, we discussed last podcast that uh, Derry or London Derry, depending on what you on, on what you want to call the city, mm-hmm. uh, I'm going for Derry. Um, so there was a rally planned for when they uh, when the marchers arrived in Derry. The police broke up the rally and serious rioting occurred now. So we'd almost, this was a step above uh, the rioting which had been taking place in 1968. Of course, just weeks, months before. And at this stage, in January of 1969, the RUC were struggling to cope. Uh, They were, on the face of it, there were only 3,000 members of the police. Yes, we covered last podcast the huge arsenal of weapons that they had the huge support that they had, the huge number of reserves. But police reserves are just that. And uh, I'm sure as all you listeners, or as all our listeners know, when when you're looking at something like a riot on TV, you need extremely coordinated tactics mm. uh, from the police. So it's not something the police reserves can really do. And uh, their 3,000 members were unused to dealing with so many marches. And of course, so much appalling publicity. So... You know, this was a time when police were generally respected, but this went down and down and down and down. Uh, so these men were struggling. Now, by the end of January, it looked like unionism was splitting. On the one side, you've got uh, you've got O'Neill and, and reformists, and on the other side, you've got you know not an inch. We're not giving in to the civil rights demands. So O'Neill did what any politician does when they are uh, faced with a split. They called an election. O'Neill scraped by, but uh, the division was clear. So he stayed on as prime minister. He got that uh, dreaded vote of confidence. As we go into March, towards the end of March, Paisley was jailed for organising an illegal counter-demonstration the previous November. And he gladly went to jail because, again, that's good press, isn't it? Mm. Five days later, there were explosions at an electricity plant outside Belfast, which caused a blackout in the city. Over the next uh, four weeks, five more bombs were exploded. Now, all were planned, of course, to destabilise the government, put pressure on O'Neill. And it was made to look like this was the IRA, but actually it was loyalist terrorist groups who wanted to pin this uh, on on the IRA. So within three months of the year starting, we've got bombs. Nobody died, no, no injuries, no deaths, but we've got uh, bombs being used. And now we go into April. April began with a by-election and Bernadette Devlin was elected to Westminster. And at 21 years old, she was the youngest female MP. She really did not she was not one for let's say behaving in the way that that one would be expected to in the houses uh, in the houses of parliament so she was uh i think at one stage she attacked the home secretary uh, and uh, in the house of commons yeah please so she tell was, me there's um, footage of this you know i don't know i just know that she did i, I really hope I there will be a suppose that, that would be yeah um so she was um 
I think she, uh, I think it was in the 2017 election that, that a new MP perhaps was younger than her and, and took the record off her. But listen, at the end of April, the 28th, O'Neill resigned. He, he, he couldn't face it anymore. So we got, what, four months into, into the year. His successor, a man called James Chichester Clark, was, in his own words, first and foremost, a farmer and only uh, secondarily a politician. So this was a man who had previously resigned from the government when one man, one vote had been introduced just a few weeks previous. So this is the stage uh, we're getting to as we approach July. Now, we discussed in the last podcast episode that it was marching season. Every July to commemorate uh, William of Orange's victory at the Battle of the Boyne and uh, almost Ulster becoming a secure colony loyal to the English crown. Um, every 12th of July, that's celebrated and remembered in marches right the way across Northern Ireland. And uh, a lot of the time, uh, throughout the Troubles, uh, there was serious, serious violence. And of course, 1969 was no different. There was serious rioting in Derry and Belfast and Dungiven. Some Catholic families were burnt out of their homes where mobs would approach, you know, in no uncertain terms, leave your home. And, and it would be burnt down. Now, the crunch came in August. And by the time we get to the end of this month, I want to leave it there because that is when uh, almost the, the battle lines were drawn and, and they would stay for the next for the next three decades. Now, <clears throat> the apprentice boys, who were a group very, very similar to the Orange Order, who again we discussed last lesson they excuse me i'm so sorry and i just called it another lesson <laughs> oh god Ollie, no, so i sorry. like it <laughs> <laughs> i've been teaching the french revolution all day and we've been doing napoleon and throughout the day i've said and in last lesson we discussed napoleon's early <laughs> oh god sorry in our last podcast discussion yeah i'm glad you can't see how red my face is um the Apprentice Boys, who we discussed last podcast, were uh, a loyalist group uh, similar to the Orange Order, and they wanted to stage their traditional march in Derry on the 12th of July. Now, Chichester Clark had been summoned to meet uh, Wilson, the Prime Minister of, of Britain, and his Home Secretary, Callaghan. And at this stage, Wilson and Callaghan had said, we don't want to bring troops in, but it looks like that might have to happen. The British army might have to get involved here. Um, and Chichester Clark said, yeah, that's fine. By the way, can we have permission? Uh, just to clarify, I'm sure it's fine. Can this apprentice boys march go ahead? Of course, the answer was yes. And now we started to see what was close to a full-scale uprising in, in Derry. And uh, the area Free Derry was was created, this this almost no-go area for members of, I suppose we would say members of the security forces, you know, the, the police in, in Northern Ireland. So there were huge riots in Derry when police vehicles at one stage breached barricades that had been built around the Catholic area of the bog side. Protestant mobs charged in after the police smashing windows, etc. Now, the police hadn't planned this, but nonetheless, the what it showed was was clear um, or certainly appeared clear to, to Catholics within the city that the police had let uh, a violent mob in to attack their, their neighbourhoods. So what we've got now is uh, on the 12th of August, we have uh, the police force and indeed the government had lost control of a large part of the second city of Northern Ireland. And these running street battles meant that the police were totally, totally exhausted. But then, of course, in Belfast, what was decided was there was going to be diversionary protests and riots to take the heat off uh, the bogsiders, the, the people mm. from the bogside in Derry. So then we've got huge clashes in Belfast between uh, Protestants and Catholics um, right the way across the city. And uh, in a book, Making Sense of the David McKittrick, ancient guns come out of their attic hiding place and sending rifle and pistol shots ringing down the back streets. Hundreds of houses were set on fire, unquote. And um, 
Across the city then, Catholics were burnt out of their neighbourhoods. In the biggest population shift in Western Europe since, since World War II, a whole street uh, called uh, Bombay Street was was raised to the ground. Um, now, of course, some some uh, Protestant families were, were burnt burnt out, I suppose the, the verb would be, of, um, of Catholic areas as well. But I mean, most of this, I suppose what's been called pogroms, were, 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 were perpetrated on, on, on the Catholic population. And it was at this stage that Chichester Clark sent an urgent request, which actually reached Wilson when he was flying in a plane saying, right, the military, the military have to come in. So soldiers arrived on the 14th of August and initially they were welcomed by both sides. They were bringing a, a lull to, to the violence, but they quickly lost Catholic support as they, I suppose, naturally worked, worked with the police. They really didn't know what they were getting involved in. So went to, I suppose, naturally they, in that situation, they would go to the Northern Ireland police, um, who, uh, who essentially, yeah, who, who would have given them information that, that would have alienated uh, the largely Catholic community. So by the end of the month, we've got, uh, let me see, so we've got 1,800 families had been forced out of their homes. 1,500 of these were, were Catholic. There were eight people dead. Uh, two of those were Protestants and, and six were Catholic. And as I've mentioned earlier, the London government had now got involved in in Northern Ireland and they were there to stay. This convention which prohibited the discussion of Northern Ireland in the House of Commons was gone. And now we also have another player getting involved, the Dublin government. Now, Jack Lynch was the Taoiseach, uh, the Prime Minister of the Republic of Ireland at the time. And he, I think, was the right man for the right time. He was the first Taoiseach who didn't have a record with the IRA. He hadn't fought in, in the War of Independence. He hadn't been involved in the Civil War. He launched his political career off a really nominal sporting career. So he won five hurling All-Ireland medals and one football one. Oh, no way. So, so for your listeners, that's I guess that's the equivalent of winning, uh, I suppose, six FA Cup finals but in two separate sports. So if oh, you imagine that awesome. hockey was as popular as football. So, yeah, I mean, he was a phenomenal athlete. So he was named in the sort of the the uh, hurling team of the century. So this was like a really, really phenomenal sportsman who got involved uh, in politics. Now, as these events were happening north of the border, he said, and I quote, it is clear that the Irish government can no longer stand by and see innocent people injured and perhaps worse, unquote. Now, bizarrely, this has gone down in folklore as he said that his government could not stand idly by. But he did not use that adverb. Now, members of his cabinet, I guess you could call them, you know, oxts, um, wanted to send weapons and troops north immediately. But he wanted to take a, a cautious approach here. They, his government protested to the United Nations, but Britain quickly used their veto so that it couldn't go any further. They set up field hospitals by the border. Um, the Irish army was mobilised, but I don't think I can emphasise how ineffectual they would have been. It took them two days to get to the border because their jeeps and uh, trucks kept breaking down and they couldn't they couldn't diesel so it's really <laughs> this is seen as like a huge what if in irish history by some if only the irish army could have saved Derry, they could have held two small towns for maybe less than 48 hours they would have been no match whatsoever for you know this british army and um, to give an example of the irish army they had gone to the congo in the early 60s on a un peacekeeping exercise but they went there with World War One rifles and thick woolen jumpers. Um, so it got to the stage in their uh, operations there that the Swedish soldiers had to lend them and equipment. So like the Irish army was quite embarrassing at that stage. Um, <laughs> so one of those what ifs of Irish history that is, that is nonsense. Um, now Lynch did make other moves. He did send, uh, he gave training to some men from Derry using the Irish military in Donegal, which is right up in the northwest of Ireland. And uh, 
His government allocated 100,000 Irish pounds, and at this stage the two currencies were linked, so it was the same value as, as a British pound, for the relief of distress. Now, a lot of that money made its way into into uh, Republican hands. So, he, of course, he was no angel, but I think he was the right man at the right time. He set a precedent of Dublin government, after decades of ignoring Northern Ireland, of taking a public interest in affairs, but stopped short of, um, I guess, a military conflict. And then, of course, you can't talk about the troubles to an Englishman without bringing up the IRA. Now, the IRA, I mentioned before, were were, a left-wing protest group. Uh, There was graffiti in West Belfast. said, IRA, I ran away. But huge amounts of money and support uh, flooded in. And they developed really, really quickly into a paramilitary group. Um, Throughout the 60s, most people didn't support them. The vast majority of them didn't. But when they needed protection from from mobs uh, in the summer of 1969, then a lot of people did turn to the IRA for support to, uh, in some cases... um, literally uh, armed men protecting neighbourhoods and others uh, providing houses for people who'd lost their own houses. And at this stage, there was a split in the IRA. So the official IRA remained Marxist and the provisional IRA, uh, they were more traditional Republicans. Now, bizarrely, the first IRA victim of the Troubles was a car crash on active duty. Now, that's all I, I, I all I know about this car crash was that it happened when the person was on active duty. The car crashed, nothing to do, uh, you know, the army or loyalists or anything like that. The person crashed the car and died. A passenger in the car was actually Jerry Adams. So that is an interesting what if of Irish history, that mm. what if Jerry Adams died almost before the troubles had begun. So here we are by the end of the summer of 1969 we've got peace lines which were being built across belfast and uh the coming months and years which see huge levels of violence uh you know further division within society but listen this podcast isn't about talking about the troubles themselves but about how it started so i hope i have talked you through this era from 1963 to the summer of 1969 do you have any questions? Yes, I've been writing vigorously whilst you've been talking. <laughs> um, Wonderful. So, the police, were they uh, were they always unionists? Were there ever um, Republicans working for the police? Because uh, it, it seems like it's a, a unionist kind of group of people. Yeah, I think that they were, there were Catholic policemen, absolutely, but they were, they were their numbers were not representative of, let's say, the ratio of, of the Catholic population of Northern Ireland. Um, so largely, they, they were a unionist organisation, and when the Troubles ended, then the Royal Ulster Constabulary were then renamed as the Service of Northern Ireland because of the reputation that, that they had mm. as a partisan police force i guess you could call them but no of course listen there were there were catholics who served in the police force uh absolutely and uh not just in the 60s but right the way throughout the troubles yeah okay and do sorry my my next question is um so you were saying there that the uh initially the ira like people weren't really fond of them but then all of a sudden um they grew in numbers and and people felt protected by them do you think that's because mm. they felt let down by the people who were the meant to be protecting society as a whole so so like the police and the army and everyone that is the meant to keep you safe as a citizen they're not doing that mm. so actually you find solace in uh the ira who are actually going to patrol the streets and make sure that no one comes in your house and keeps you and your wife mm. and kids mm. and that's safe um is that kind of what happened there do you think 
Yeah, I mean, I never, th- I never really thought of it that way that the people who are meant to keep a society safe don't, so people turn to someone else. Um, but I guess that would be, uh, I, I guess on one level that is true. But then on another, that phrase that we discussed in part one was a cold house, this idea that Northern Ireland was a cold house for Catholics, and they never really felt welcome. So I think that the more likely explanation would be that there was never that trust there anyway. I don't think that there would have been the trust that that the police would have protected them anyway. Now, I mean, what, what I must say is, is that while, yes, the IRA did uh, defend areas uh, at this time, they quickly, quickly went on the offensive afterwards. So it's, uh, I, I wouldn't want to paint this as a uh, in shining armor situation mm. where, you know, these these darling communities were, were, were protected and, and that was it that this quickly, they quickly did go, go on offensive um, well, know, shootings I, and bombings and, yeah, and whatnot. I think it's important to know, though, because, as I said, from hmm. from the way that it's been portrayed to us uh, at school or, or growing up, we were kind of always... It was almost like islands were a fawn in... Or, sorry, Northern Ireland was a fawn in the British side but they still didn't want Mm. to let it go because they were britain and it was theirs so they would defend it to the end and um it just Mm. yeah it just seems quite petty when you think about it like that but um Mm. that that's sort of how it was displayed to us and and i mean i think i mentioned this before when the um uh, so Scotland wanted to break away in, independently and stuff, and it's a, a lot of British people just out of spite won't allow it to happen, um, mm. which mm. seems completely bizarre to me. Um, I was definitely probably born in the wrong country. <laughs> like, um, <laughs> you, you have said that before, yeah, yeah. yeah. I suppose what, what what I would say is that um, I mean, I suppose we do have to remember that at this stage. The, the majority of people in Northern Ireland wanted Northern Ireland to remain within the United Kingdom. So, the, you know, that that has... Um, I suppose we're only reaching the stage now where there is almost, you know, uh, 50-50 levels in terms of, you I was know, say, what uh, nationalist think, and unionist. What do you think that would be now? I, I mean... Yeah. To be honest, I don't know. Uh, it's I, I haven't lived in Belfast since 2004, um, but you know it, it is getting closer and closer. But I suppose if we if we go back to to the start of the troubles, I, I, I think it, the idea that you know Britain was holding on to Northern Ireland in in this way that perhaps it would have held on to you know colonies that they would have had previously, I think that while Northern Ireland was to- totally flawed, there was always throughout this period that we've been discussing, the majority did want to stay as part of the United Kingdom. And mm. um, think the events of 1969, actually, what they showed was that uh, there was this huge dissatisfaction. And I suppose that dissatisfaction showed itself uh, and, and eventually descended into the troubles themselves. But I think the view that, that Britain was sort of holding on is sort of misses out the the sort of Protestant community who, who would argue, yes, but the majority of the six mm. counties of Northern Ireland did want to stay as part of Britain. So I suppose when, when we do bring it back to the creation of the IRA, I think you do have a point that it's, well, if you're not going to be protected by the police, then you do need someone to protect you. And and I think that there, there are ones of truth in that that would have grown the IRA's popularity in Catholic areas, for mm. sure. Especially if there's sort of, there's a real... Uh, possibility of, of violence coming to your doorstep then you kind of you get that not i'm not comparing them to a mob but you do get that mob rule don't you mm. like mm. when people mm. if they're not going to help us if the people who are the meant to help us are not going to help us then we need to do something ourselves um yeah yeah so i mean that's when when i went to to belfast now i don't know when these um murals started appearing on the side of sort of terraced houses and buildings and stuff but they're um 
they're really uh, poignant symbol, aren't they? Of of what kind of area you're in, um, uh, like the political messages and stuff that are kind of on the side of these buildings. Um, do you know, like, sort mm. of when did they sort of start springing up? Do you know? Uh, really good question. You know, I'd have to hold up my hands and say that that I don't know. I do know that, of course, it was it was part of the culture. You know, and and uh, you know. Growing up in in Northern Ireland in uh, sort of sort of late eighties and nineties, yeah, of course, yeah, you 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 would see them. Every, I think quite a large number of them have been changed or or, or taken away, but um, it did weirdly become part part of the culture. Um, but no, I'd have to hold up my hands up and say that uh, I'm not sure when they when they became very popular. Mm-hmm. Mm. They're really interesting. Um, again, that was a very poignant um, thing that we used to see on the telly all the time. Um, uh, pictures of people with guns quite a lot of the times. Um, again, I don't obviously they weren't all with guns, but I think it was deliberately sort of shown to us to sort of make us intimidated. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? It was very well. Yeah, they're they're very striking images, aren't mm, they? Yeah, but but the, what I'm and saying the thing is, is... Um, it's not we weren't shown all the images. We were just shown the sure striking yeah. ones. Hmm. Hmm. And uh, I suppose as well, there w- there would be a need for murals and whatnot, because, you know, Northern Ireland as a whole, I think population wise is one third the population of London and uh, Belfast would be in and around half a million people. So in a small city and small areas, you s- I suppose you do need to signpost the... Uh, signpost the community of your neighborhood <laughs> yeah, yeah and absolutely. uh murals will be one way of doing that yeah absolutely very um symbolic um and i know there's a the really famous one in derry or london derry um that's on the side of the wall it's like you are now entering free derry um just yeah. really simple yeah. on that white background and that's really famous isn't it um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and that, and of course, then the area of Free Derry. So that was created in August nineteen sixty nine. This uh, symbol that you know Derry was free from, uh, I suppose, the the control in many ways of of the Stormont government, and, and particularly then the RUC. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I the thing it's so intertwined. I mean, we 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 spoke about that in part one. That it is so in. Um, like sewn into the 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 threads of of Ireland, isn't it? Like all of this stuff. It's how we've got to where we are now is actually nothing short of a miracle. I don't think. Um, yeah, purely. Yeah, because, I, I think yeah. so. Yeah, and and I mean when, when you know in, in part one we discussed the Ulster plantation and when you've got those memories that play such an active role in a present day society um i think that that's certainly uh i, I suppose yeah you're right it, it does show how, how far people have come yeah and um you know there were sources sources written uh and you know as late as 1966 mm. uh saying god northern ireland's going really well it's stable it's you know from from, from nationalists as well you know it's stable it's fine uh, long may this peace last and almost talking about political violence as uh, something of the past from the 1920s mm. and almost saying never say never but i can't really see this happening again and of course less than half a decade later that's such it's it's widespread so i, I suppose that division in society from the ulster plantation onwards would certainly manifest itself at different points and absolutely did mm. in 1969 so do you obviously because we spoke about um uh, Northern Ireland being Northern Ireland a hundred years this year. Do you think there's a threat? Oh, of course, yeah. Do yeah. you think there's a threat of potential unsettled feelings? You know, people get um, quite passionate on anniversaries of things. Hmm. Um, do you think there's uh, there's a potential of it sort of stemming? To a bit of chaos, I guess. Um, or do you think well, it'll be played down massively? Well, I think there's there's always... There, there, I suppose there's always the potential of these things, you know. And as we know in history, anniversaries happen a lot, you know. Mm. And 
1966, there was the 50-year anniversary of the Easter Rising, almost like the founding of the modern Irish Republic. And uh, there was huge fear in, in Northern Ireland that this could spark a, you know, a nationalist revolution. Didn't happen. Um, 2016, the commemorations uh, didn't uh, didn't really result in, in any violence. So, uh, I mean, the violence that has been written about of late, you know, speaking in uh, February 2021, mm. has been a, the violence related to the sea border for, for Brexit. But then it's interesting that has, has that been exaggerated because it, it, it appears that in subsequent... Uh, you know, newspaper stories and whatnot. Recently, uh, a lot of the threats of violence appear to have been fabricated. So it's one of those things of, well, we don't know. But I think this is where uh, historians and uh, politicians, I guess, and, you know, teachers and the media, of course, have a huge role to play, where Mm. looking back in the past and actually just discussing all of the the things that happened rather than... uh, I suppose, uh, demonizing uh, aspects of the past uh, or, uh, you know, making heroes or whatever. I think it's just a case of kind of like, like what, what we discussed in uh, in part one of just discussing what happened. Because I think for the, for the vast majority of people, they don't really know what happened in the past. There's a few standout moments where people will know, oh, yeah, that person was around there. This happened. Oh, yeah, Northern Ireland was created. But I think to actually to learn about what happened, I think would be a way better way to, to remember to, than to uh, create almost these myths or legends. But to answer your question, uh, I don't know, but um, I suppose I don't know. Mm. I I wish I could predict the future. (laughs) I'm a very wealthy man if I could. Uh, Yes, absolutely. I... As I've mentioned before, how much I love Belfast. Um, I mean, I've only been there once, but I had a very nice time. It was lovely. Um, It seemed like a very modern cosmopolitan city like there were lots of people from mm. different places mm. which is probably very different mm-hmm. to what it probably was in the 60s um i'm guessing it's got yeah. a bit of a facelift um we were actually discussing weren't we at one point there's this pub there that i absolutely adore so it's called the crown pub and it's mm. still got all of its original sort of victorian edwardian um uh like innings so it's still got all the all mm. like the wood paneling and the the booths and stuff and it's oh it's amazing anyone mm. should look it up beautiful lovely mm. pub yeah 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 isn't it opposite what was the hotel called opposite it's uh, it's opposite the europa yeah the the most bombed hotel in europe they they don't advertise that now in, in, in fairness to them that that's not a selling point <laughs> so how, how this crown pub survived is incredible but um it's actually right. Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah, it's absolutely stunning. Um, it's like stepping back in time. I think it's actually owned mm. by. Is it National Trust? I think it's actually owned by some is of it? the, one of these right. big. Yeah, I think it is. Um, uh, yeah, obviously it's still a functioning pub, but um, yeah, I think it's mm. owned and, mm. and sort of looked after by them. Um, oh, nice. Which, well, here, here's to it reopening at some point before the summer. Yes, yes. I've been um, texting my friend Marty all day, trying to pin him down on on getting a date when we can meet in um, <laughs> meet in Belfast. He's he lives in Dublin. Yeah. He's he's from the north. Um, but um, yeah, so he's. Ah, I also know a Marty from Belfast who lives in Dublin. But maybe this isn't the right forum to <laughs> to discuss to play the name game. Yes. <laughs> is he a pharmacist? No, no, oh, no, he's an him. actor. It's not him then. Yeah. <laughs> Different <No>. person. <laughs> How funny. It must be a common name. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, Martin. There we go. We have reached the end, Patrick. We have reached the end. And, you know, I, I must uh, I must thank you so much for, for the opportunity to talk about uh, to talk about this topic. And it has been great to supposed to have someone listen so intently. I was mm. discussing this with a friend recently and we we both sort of said that generally when you talk about the troubles, you, people just kind of ignore you or say, all right, OK, yeah, move on, move on, move on. So it's <laughs> Roll great their to eyes. A couple of hours. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's, it's great to be able to talk to uh 
to sort of a, a fellow history geek mm. about the past. And uh, yeah, thanks very much for this opportunity. It's been great. And I can't wait for our next episode now, which is not on the Troubles. It's it's on a it's on a shipping disaster. Mm, yeah, again, <laughs> so I know nothing not about... The, not a yeah. light side of history. Oh, you're going to love this. It's the inspiration for Moby Dick. Uh, oh, where a sperm whale attacked a boat in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. I can't wait for this episode. Oh, um, exciting. And uh, absolutely, absolutely. So, but listen again. Thanks a million for for, for giving me the opportunity to talk uh, to talk some Irish history. I've I've really enjoyed it. Yeah, thank you. No, thank you. It's been a wonderful lesson. Just see what I did Podcast. there. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, marvellous stuff. Brilliant. Thank you very much. That is literally how I'm ending it. That is good. <laughs>